Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the first episode of our new series on commercial businesses new to government contracting. In this episode, John Williams and Kevin Barnett discuss the basics of what commercial businesses need to know before entering the federal marketplace. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We are not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today, and welcome to Episode 1 in our six-part podcast series, An Introduction to Government Contracting. I'm John Williams, a partner with Polera Mazza, and I'm the chair of our Government Contracts Practice Group. Polaro Mazda is a law firm primarily located in Washington, D.C., and we represent clients across the U.S. We're most well-known for our government contracts practice, where we represent contractors large and small that do business with the federal government across a broad spectrum of industries and federal agencies. A very common project for us in our government contracts group is to assist commercial firms with the many different issues that they encounter when they first get into government contracting. And so we know from those experiences, it can really feel like drinking through a fire hose uh, because the federal government has so many unique requirements and regulations that just don't have an analog in the commercial world. Uh, Given the breadth and the depth of our government contracts practice, we're able to help guide these commercial firms in understanding the rules of the road and the new processes and procedures they'll need to implement as they embark on the sometimes painful, but also often rewarding journey into federal contracting. Polaramaza is so well positioned to help commercial firms as they break into the federal market because we're much more than just a government contracting firm. Our other core practice groups include labor and employment, business and transactions, and litigation. These teams know very well the unique labor and employment obligations that commercial firms will encounter as a federal contractor, and how having federal contracts impacts mergers, acquisitions, and other corporate transactions, and how disputes are resolved with federal contractors and with federal agencies. Our teams bring all these experiences to bear when assisting commercial firms in getting into federal contracting, and the goal of this podcast series is to share those experiences with you. We've designed this series for commercial businesses that are new to government contracting or are thinking about entering the federal market for the first time. Each episode will provide an overview of different aspects of federal contracting that are unique to the federal market and that typically require an adjustment for commercial firms. We're going to have attorneys from each of our core practice groups leading the different episodes to show you how our groups work together to provide an integrated solution for commercial firms as they move into federal contracting. This is our first episode in the series and we're calling it, So You Want to Be a Government Contractor, What Commercial Businesses Need to Know. Another episode in this series will cover labor and employment issues unique to government contractors. We're also gonna have an episode that focuses on the different types of strategic partnerships that federal contractors use to increase their competitive advantage and win work with the federal government. Other episodes will focus on preparing for and going through corporate transactions as a government contractor, the unique dispute resolution processes for federal contractors, 
and the small business programs and requirements for federal contracts and contractors. For this first episode, I'm really pleased to be joined by Kevin Barnett. Kevin is a counsel in our government contracts group. He's got a wealth of experience in government contracting. And in our group, we affectionately refer to him as our Swiss Army knife because he's so adept at tackling the wide variety of regulatory compliance and contractual issues that are coming up for our contractor clients on a daily basis. Kevin is often in the co-pilot seat for our commercial clients as they break into government contracting, and he draws on his experiences from representing federal contractors for many years to help these commercial firms understand and prepare for the brave new world of federal contracting. Kevin, thanks so much for being here and welcome. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. And uh, you're spot on. I've been helping federal contractors for over a decade now, and in that time, I've encountered a wide variety of issues and experiences. And it's those experiences that help me guide commercial firms as they're first getting their feet wet in federal contract. And as you said, it truly is a fire hose. And it's best not to try and drink it all at once or <laughs> it's a painful. And that's something that we're gonna try and help contractors or future contractors out with today. Although it would not be possible for us to cover everything a government contractor needs to know in today's 30-minute segment or even throughout the six-part series, right. but we're going to try. What we will do is provide an overview of what we think are the key points that companies need to be aware of as they first consider getting into federal contracting. Yeah, that sounds great. Hopefully for the listener, you know, it won't be too overwhelming. I mean, we're obviously, like Kevin said, we can't cover everything, but the idea is to give you a good overview of some of the key things that if you're asking that question, you know, so we want to be a government contractor, like these are some of the key things you need to know. And I think maybe the most important place to start is understanding how the government buys, because that is a different animal from the commercial world in many respects, right? Absolutely. I think the common on the street idea is that government contracts are handed out to your buddies or your cronies, um, but that you know almost couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, the government is actually required by law to uh, promote competition to the maximum extent practicable. And what exactly that means, maximum extent practicable, depends on the situation. Oftentimes the government will start that process of determining how much competition is needed uh, by conducting market research. And that market research might be, you know, behind the scenes, the government agency, the government buyer, looking at what's available in the commercial marketplace, looking at what other agencies purchase. It could also be putting out a request for information or sending a direct uh, communication to a company to find out more information about what products or services they offer. And those can be opportunities to shape what the government wants to buy. And with that information, they're going to learn how many players are, how many companies are offering the products or services the agency is looking to acquire. And that's one of the two key determining factors of how much competition is necessary. The other, as I'll talk about in a few moments, is how badly the government needs the product or service. So as a default, if there are more than you know, multiple multiple firms in the marketplace, the government is going to offer the product or service as a full and open, means any company can bid on it and 
they're going to award it to the company that meets the evaluation criteria the best. In some circumstances, the government may determine that uh, there are a number of small businesses or a number of economically disadvantaged businesses or socially disadvantaged businesses. And we'll get into more about what exactly that means in, in some of our later series. But if there are numerous entities in these particular groups or classes that can provide the good or service, the government's going to likely do what's called a set-aside and say, we're only competing this product or service among women-owned small businesses, for example. Yeah, so you might go into federal contracting thinking, all right, competition, great, we can compete, you know, full and open, we'll take our best shot. But it could be that depending on the market you're in, the particular agencies, uh, because they're under obligations to put a certain amount of their spending towards small businesses, you may face restricted competitions that you can't compete in. Exactly. And you may face circumstances where certain types of companies get price preferences. So they're the low price, even though they're 5% higher. Wrap your head around that one. <laughs> and there are going to be other situations where the government just needs a particular type of widget or it needs a product and service and it needs it yesterday and it doesn't have time or the product is just not available in, in the types of quantities in the market to facilitate competition. And that's when the government is allowed to award contracts based on a sole source award. And that's when the government gives it to a particular company. I think, you know, famously, you hear about the Halliburton sole source awards uh, following the evasion of Iraq. Most of the time, they, they sole source awards are not nearly as large or as conspiracy theory associated. But that is just that's a very important distinction from the, what folks will be used to in the commercial world. You know, we're starting with the presumption in favor of competition and only if certain exceptions are met, essentially, would you potentially have sole source contracting? Exactly. And one of those exceptions is not, we've used them before and they're great, or we love the product that they've been giving us, or they've given us, me, a ton of business when I was in the private sector. So after the agency has determined what level of competition it needs to provide, the agency is going to issue a solicitation. And the solicitation is going to tell you a number of important things, most important of which is what product or service the government is looking for, what technical specifications or requirements the government needs in that product or service, and how the government is going to evaluate that product or service and your proposal for the same. Typically, your proposal is going to be split up into three basic parts, the technical proposal, the past performance, and your price. And the government is going to have detailed instructions about how they're going to evaluate each. The two typical types of evaluations you're going to see is lowest price technically acceptable, in which case the government takes all the products that meet a baseline criteria and gives it to the lowest price. Um, that's particularly common for commodity type products. Oftentimes services or more complex products will be 
sold on a best value basis. And that's where the government has to make a trade-off between how much the product costs, it's uh, a particular product's technical evaluation, and its past performance rating. And there's been a move away from lowest price procurement. So hasn't there in recent years? I think the pendulum has swung. Yeah, the pendulum is always going back and forth. Um, the difficulty is lowest price technically acceptable or LPTA is just easier to evaluate. Mm-hmm. And so agencies favor that. The problem is you know, there are some products where you want to pay a little bit more to get the brand name because you're going to have longer term savings. Yeah. And I think past performance is the other key point that you were talking about for new firms getting into federal contracting for the first time. You know, you can show up at the government's door thinking you've got a great price and, you know, the right technical solution for what they need. But if you've never done work with the federal government before, that's going to be a drag on your competitiveness, right? Absolutely. And and there are some ways to mitigate that. Um, Sometimes contractor companies will start out as subcontractors and oftentimes your subcontract performance can be used as past performance. And other situations, contractors will enter into teaming, you know, teaming arrangements with existing government contractors or joint ventures or some other strategic partnership. Um, we're going to go into those types of, of options later on in the series. But that's another great way that companies can build their past performance um, without being the sole prime contractor. Mm-hmm. One other piece of information the solicitation is going to tell you is often what type of contract is going to be awarded. And, you know, there are a number of different types. It can be a firm fixed price contract, a cost plus contract, um, an IDIQ contract, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity. Um, And the type of contract is, is really important because it's going to tell you, one, how you're going to get paid, which frankly is, is why we're doing this. And also equally as important sometimes is how the contract is going to allocate risk. For example, if you have a firm fixed price contract, you're obligated to do whatever the scope of work is that you agree to for the agreed upon price. And if you do it for less, then you get a profit. And if you do it for more, you take a loss. You know, I, I think we talk to clients almost daily about that issue, particularly right now, where there are so many supply chain issues and inflation is such a problem. Yeah, and I mean, that's a great point. There are ways that even on a fixed price contract, you could potentially get your price increased if there's been a change in the scope of work. For example, we are in a future episode going to talk a little bit more about what that process looks like and how you go through the process of getting adjustments to contracts. but. Inflation is a, is a not that's a different ballgame. That that is something that's being discussed right now. We know the government's looking at ways to try to help contractors there, but it is uh, a problem that needs solving at the moment for federal contractors. Now, on, on the flip side of things, you have cost plus contracts, and in those, the government is the one that that takes the risk. And a cost side contract is basically where the government agrees to pay whatever costs you incur 
to perform the service or to provide the product. And then there is an award fee or a fixed fee or some other type of um, profit mechanism where the government's bearing those risks of, of increased costs and, and delays. And what's interesting though is in addition to who's bearing the risk or as part of who's bearing the risk rather, the level of compliance obligations is also closely tied to the type of contract that you're providing. Cost reimbursement contracts come with a large number of accounting obligations, whereas a firm fixed price contract, especially a firm fixed price contract for a commercial item, is going to come with a much smaller number of compliance obligations. As a commercial firm transitioning into, into the federal marketplace, another key, another key issue is that the government has special a preference almost to purchase commercial products or services. And those, the definition of commercial products or services is essentially products or services that are sold in the commercial marketplace in sufficient quantities or items of that type. And as I mentioned before, you have significantly fewer compliance obligations. And in fact, one of the ways the government does the most buying is through its, its multiple award contracts or, or federal supply schedule contracts, where they sell through the General Services Administration or GSA, uh, a large number of commercial, commercial items. Yeah, that, that's a, a really popular uh, method for selling to the federal government through these, like what Kevin mentioned, the GSA, the, the federal supply schedule, or we call them GSA schedule contracts, or the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs also has schedule contracts, and they're essentially like catalogs. So you, there's a GSA website, e-library. You can go there and see basically all the different contractors that have their catalog essentially available for different federal agencies to make purchases from. And they they have schedules or catalogs for a wide variety of products and services. So we have clients that are selling custom signs and consulting services and medical products and uh, farm and construction equipment. I mean, a wide variety of goods and services being sold through these GSA schedule and VA schedule contracts. And so I think the, you know, one of the, the keys there is as you're investigating getting into government contracting, you have to understand what, what you sell and where you're going to sell it, what's going to be the most advantageous way to sell it. And it could be that being on these schedule contracts is a must-have for you as you get into the market. You, you may need to, as part of your business development strategy, identify the right catalogs that you need to have essentially available for the government. And the, the, there's another type of contract similar called the government-wide acquisition contract or a GWAC, which if I could just pause here for a minute, like maybe the most important thing getting into government contracting for the first time is understanding the acronyms. It's like 
alphabet. So, you know, Kevin said IDIQ and I said, just said GWAC and then we're probably going to slip into acronyms here. We'll try to define them as much as we can, but, but it's, it's important to stay on top of the, the acronyms and maybe more than anything else. But so GWACs are another type of contract that's put out by one agency and it kind of becomes a catalog in a sense for other agencies to order under. Uh, we have a lot of clients that are in the information technology industries. And I think we can just call that IT, John. Yeah. I think they have that acronym. <laughs> and, and professional services in general, consulting, et cetera, that there are a lot of big IDIQ GWAC contracts out there that if you're going to be in those fields selling to the government, you really need to be on those vehicles. And if you if you don't have if you don't have that contract yourself, then like Kevin mentioned, you look at strategic partnership arrangements, teaming agreements, and joint ventures, and other ways to work with other companies that do have those critical contracts. And, and so definitely encourage you to listen to the future episode that's going to talk about strategic partnerships. And just taking a step back, how these GWACs um, and other similar multiple award contracts work is the government will award a contract to two, three, seven, 50 companies. And that will come with almost no work. And you will get a nominal minimum requirement for being on the contract. But the real value is you will then have tax orders or delivery orders under the contract that all those companies or some of those companies will all compete for. Yeah, that's a great point. We often refer to these GWACs and schedule contracts as hunting licenses. That's all they really are is a license to go hunt work. You're not guaranteed more than a very minimal amount of work uh, on these vehicles. But in order to be able to hunt, a lot of times you've got to have these contracts under your belt. You know, there's just no other way about it, depending on your industry and the agencies that, that you're going to. So it's important to identify what hunting licenses you might need and then what's going to be your plan, the process, the timeline, et cetera, to go about getting those hunting licenses. That, that's exactly right. And you know, true to true to our opening promise. I think we provided a, a very high-level summary of the, the types of contracts and the process that the government goes through to award those contracts. But now I want to pivot a little bit to some more of the fundamental differences about how the government does business. And it's, it's interesting because the government often suggests and talks about the government needs to start procuring goods and services more like the commercial marketplace. And it needs to be able to get access to technology at the same rate the public does, you know, and expense untold amounts of money and effort to put in these innovative acquisition programs to enable it to purchase like the commercial marketplace. And they all fail. And they all fail for the same basic reason. Contracting with the government is different. For example, the government offers fundamentally different business terms. Commercial companies are often surprised when I, I explain to them that 
in every government contract, the government has the right to terminate the contract at any point for any or no reason at all, and then only pay them for their efforts up to that moment. And that's called a termination for convenience. Everywhere else in the world, that's called a breach of contract. Mm -hmm. But for the government, it's a termination for convenience. And that's a really important thing to understand. One, so that you're not scared off when you see this term in your contract. It's a very standard term. It's not some landmine that the government is putting in there. But also so you understand what your rights and obligations are with respect to your vendors and your subcontractors and thinking about how the government exercising its rights may impact you. Yeah, I think somewhat related to that, you know, most government contracts are awarded for a base period with options. You know, this is the standard term for a lot of the, the clients that we work with, their contracts. It's a five-year contract, 12-month base year, four one-year options. Those options are entirely at the discretion of the government. And so they can decide, you know, again, essentially for their convenience, whether they're going to continue the contract or not. So it it does require, I think, an a, a understanding of that and kind of a different mindset when you're assessing your pipeline and what your business prospects are like with the government versus in the commercial world where it may be easier to predict that 10-year contract, you're getting the full value of that 10-year contract. And it just doesn't work the same in the federal market. Absolutely. Um, and, and sometimes not even to the fault of the company and not even to the fault of the agency. Um, we dealt with the government shutdown um, not too long ago. And, and when the government doesn't have any money, it, it can't exercise options or award contracts, no matter how much the agency likes you or wants you to continue your work. So that, that creates a, a little bit of a, a hiccup that's not present in the, in the commercial world. I think the other or one of the other big differences that we see when talking to commercial companies um, is this idea that if the government is in breach of the contract, um, most egregiously, you know, not paying your bills on time or breaching some other key term, while you have options to remedy that breach, the company needs to continue to perform. The company does not get to stop performance because the government is in breach. And again, that's that's contrary to what I learned one out year of, of law school and in my contracts class. Mm -hmm. Similarly, the consequences if you breach a government contract are a little bit different. Um, I, I remember my contracts professor was, was very big about efficient breach. Oh, you know, I my damages will be less than the profit I can make by selling it to someone else. So it makes sense to breach. Whoa, 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 whoa. If you breach a government contract, you can be terminated for default. That has issues where that could result in you being prohibited from selling to the government for a two to three year period, called suspension or debarment. Um, a termination for default is also going to go on your past performance and will impact your ability to get future contracts, even if you're allowed to. Right, because and I'm sorry, let me jump in there because all federal contractors have. They're a profile, like their uh, 
dating profile, so to speak, right? And in, in something called the System for Award Management or SAM.gov. And so in this website, you'll have a profile on your company and you'll have to check the box on various uh, representations and certifications to tell prospective government customers about you. And one of the things you would have to do in this scenario that Kevin was just describing, if you got terminated for a default, you'd have to check the box you've been terminated for a default. So then when any other federal agency looks up your dating profile, they're going to weigh that in to their decision on whether to award you a contract. Exactly. And you have your metaphorical dating profile on SAM.gov. You also have your you know, double secret permanent record on CPARS, the Contract of Performance Assessment Rating System, where after every contract, the government's going to you know, essentially gossip with other agencies about how good you did and whether they would use you for those goods or services in the future. So those are all those are all severe negative consequences of the T for D, a termination for default. And we haven't even got to the worst ones yet. Yeah. Yeah. So you, it's, de- it's definitely something you want to avoid. Um, because you can also be on the hook for whatever the government spends to re-procure those goods or services. And if there's some, some allegation of fraud, you could be on the hook for treble damages under the False Claims Act, which are... They're just situations you want to yeah, avoid. Yeah, you don't want to end up. You don't want to end up there. That's for sure. And there, you know, it. That's the challenge of getting. One of the challenges of making the switch into federal contracting is that there are significant consequences by statute, by the clauses in your contract, and there are a lot of regulatory requirements. You know, there's something called the Federal Acquisition Regulation. You know, it's a you know, not something, I don't know how much coffee have you guys had? Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, we could fill up the whole six-part series just talking about the FAR. I don't know who would want to listen to that besides maybe Kevin and me, but the point is there are a lot of requirements. It's a highly regulated market to go into. And I think it's just important that you start to get familiar with what you're signing up to because you do have to comply with all those requirements in your contract and understand them. And there are consequences uh, and it can be serious for, for non-compliance. So I just wanted to give a few quick points of overview on some areas of the FAR that we, I think we tend to spend more time focusing with our commercial clients on as they're getting into government contracting for the first time. One of them is labor and employment. There's a whole part of the FAR on that. I'm not going to get into that now because we're going to have our Colleagues from our labor and employment group do that in one of the other episodes. Uh, but there's a whole area uh, that's devoted to you know issues that you have to confront as an employer now uh, on federal contracts. And what I think is so difficult about those issues is that they're not drastically different than the commercial world. They're just slightly different. And those slight differences can get you in a lot of trouble if you're not on top of them. Mm-hmm. And there's another one that we've seen like increasing focus on recently, which is cybersecurity. So I think this is a growing area of concern for the federal government. I'm sure it is in the commercial world too. Uh, you know, every other month it seems there's some big breach that happens, and the government's dealing 
with that and you know significant concerns about supply chain risk and so they've heightened the importance on cybersecurity in how they evaluate uh, who they're going to do business with and especially if you're thinking about doing business with the DoD there are more stringent requirements there depending on the type of information that you receive from DoD you know the the basic cybersecurity requirements that apply to federal contractors are probably not very different from what most businesses are doing in the commercial world or at least should be doing at this point but if you are receiving more sensitive information at, as a federal contractor and particularly if you're working with DoD you're going to be subject to more stringent requirements probably beyond what you would already have in place in the commercial world. Um, and there's, they've been talking about a uh, certification that the, the DOD contractors are supposed to get. It's not online yet. It's called the CMMC or Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. So they've been talking about this for several years. I think COVID kind of blunted the momentum a little bit. But the, the notion would be it, when it, if and when it comes online, that if you want to do business with DOD, you have to have this certificate saying that your cybersecurity is up to par. Mm -hmm. and, and there are other certificate requirements as well. Um, if you're a cloud provider, um, you need a FedRAMP certification, which comes in in multiple levels. And the difficulty there is, is of course, or there both with CMMC, CMMC and FedRAMP, is even if you're doing everything that's required by those certifications, there are a number of hoops and process that you have to go through, you know, to get the certification. Mm -hmm. So even if you were the most cyber secure company walking in on day one, you're going to have some steps that need to be taken before you'll be certified um, as soon as all these different certification yeah. programs are up and running. I mean, in today's world, you, you probably need to be making the types of investments that are necessary in cyber, even if you're just sticking in the commercial world. But you won't be able to avoid it if you're going to get into federal contracting. There's there's definitely much more of a focus on that. Uh, it's been growing in the, over the last several years. And, and related to that, it really goes hand in hand. And as you mentioned, the other area that I spend a lot of time counseling commercial companies on is their supply chain. And both because of the cybersecurity aspect of it, um, the government is very concerned about contracting with any company whose telecommunications equipment is provided by China or by certain Chinese companies like Huawei or ZTE. And you're actually not allowed to contract with the government if you use those products or services without disclosing those products without disclosing it, which can be quite a an issue given how how much market share those companies have. This is not a these are not small and significant companies. These are brands you may have in your home. You likely, you likely have in, in your in your supply chain or in your office environment. Um, related to that, the government is concerned about supporting American businesses, and there are two different regimes that they use to promote the purchase of American goods. There's the Buy American Act. And there's the Trade Agreements Act. We could do a whole presentation on the differences between the two. In fact, uh, we've put out podcasts and webinars 
doing just that. Um, so you're going to get much more detailed information by going to look those up. But they essentially require the government to purchase only goods or services that are manufactured in the United States or where a certain percentage of the components are from the United States. And the actual percentage level or what countries it can be, what countries are exceptions, um, depends on the exact you know, size of the procurement and what country and, and other variables like that. But that's something that can really impact, again, as we were talking about before, you might have the better mousetrap, but since part of it was manufactured in China, the government's not interested in it. The other unique government contracting requirement, well, two others, as we talked about earlier, there are these small business preferences, and they not only impact how the government will award the contract in the first place, but they will also require large companies to have goals and try and subcontract with smaller companies. And this is another topic, subcontracting, small business subcontracting plans will be covered later in the series in more detail. Um, but it's just another example of how the government, you know, really micromanages the supply chain in the products and services that it purchase, purchases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, another aspect of this that we have to spend a fair amount of time with our commercial clients on is there are a lot of, I'll call them ethical or conflict of interest related requirements that apply to federal contractors. Some of them will have you know, some analogs in the commercial world. You know, I'm not, not bribing people, but a lot of it will, um, will be different. You know, will not come as first nature for you. You know, like if you maybe take a valued customer out to dinner uh, when you're trying to get get the next get the, the account renewed or send a, a nice holiday gift or something like that. Like these are the types of things that you know, with some exceptions, you know, and the, there there are some lines that are painted there, but you got to be very careful about giving gifts to federal employees, particularly if it's with the intent of you know, encouraging them to make a contract award. You got to be very careful about conflicts of interest, particularly what they call organizational conflicts of interest that, that arise based on what you're doing on one contract could create a conflict for what you might be doing on another contract. And I think these ethical and conflict-related concerns, and really everything we've talked about here today is a good segue into, I think, what is really most important as one of the initial steps for commercial firms looking at their internal compliance programs, right? I mean, isn't that really what we, one of the big roles that we play, Kevin, when we're brought in? Um, that's exactly right. And, and that's, that's half the battle is to understand what internal compliance programs the company is already, already implementing and compare that to what it likely will have to implement as a federal contractor. Um, in many cases, you know, the FAR is a very thick book, but most of those clauses won't apply to a particular contract. And you know, let's say there are 100 clauses that do apply. Most contractors are already going to be complying with a lot of those requirements. 
even if they'd never done business with the federal government before. Um, just the nature of, of what's being required. And we help companies, one, line up those obligations that will, they will likely have to meet as a federal contractor, and then take where they are on the provisions that they don't quite meet the federal level yet and help them develop a plan to get there. Sometimes it's as easy as editing their employee handbook or revising their standard confidentiality agreement. Sometimes it can be as complicated as, you know, they're looking at cost type contracts, bringing in a, a whole accounting team to revamp how they how they account for different incurred costs. Yeah, well, that, and that's a great point that I, I think goes to another recommendation that we make to commercial firms, which is you, you need to have a team of advisors that really know the government space. The government space is a unique animal, as we've talked about. It's a niche that, you know, there are law firms like ours and accounting firms and business development proposal writers, uh, tax folks. I mean, there's there's a whole ecosystem of advisors that really know the federal space. And I think that that's also a critical part of building up your uh, business to go after the, the federal space is to make sure you have that team of advisors that knows the federal space. There's also an internal component to that too. I mean, you need to develop the internal government-focused expertise. Those people are not necessarily going to be the same people that have been with you doing the commercial work because it's just a different, it uses different muscles in, in, in many respects going after federal work. So, yeah, well, there's definitely a lot of work to be done on the internal compliance side. I know that's a big part of what we do, and uh, hope this has been helpful for everybody listening. You know, I, I, we gave you kind of a, a rocket ship blast through the what it's like for a commercial firm as they're thinking about getting into government contracting. What are the, the top issues you need to think about? I hope we didn't scare you off. Uh, certainly, it's it's not for everybody, but you know, there's there are a lot of uh, advantages, a lot of good work to be done. You know, supporting our military, helping our civil servants uh, run their agencies better, research and development. You know, a lot of great ways to support the federal government, and and it can be a very lucrative business as well. So, uh, you know, a lot of good reasons to to look at this switch that you're considering, and would be happy to help guide you along the way as you embark down this road. Absolutely. And, and while it is daunting and, and is, it is like a fire hose, I, I think that if you do assemble that right team and, and with the help of a law firm like ours, you know, you can, you can turn it into more of a sprinkler and more targeted, digestible little bits to, to really tackle and benefit from the many advantages of selling the federal government. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This podcast is a Polero Maza production, and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.